Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a longtime friend of INET, Danny Bresnitz. He's a professor and co-director at University of Toronto. He's a co-director of the Innovation Policy Lab and the Monk Chair of the Innovation Studies. He's also a co-director of a program at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research pertaining to innovation and social equity. He uh, has written a book that I will say the founders of INET, Bill Janeway, Jim Balsilli, and myself have found to be spellbinding. It's what I think the doctor ordered as an exploration for some of the deep social tensions. And sometimes, like if you're a sailor, you're out in the ocean, and all of a sudden you, you look at the chop and waves and you know the charts aren't right. And if somebody is a better navigator, you're thankful. And that's who I think I'm with today. Danny, the book that you've written is called Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World. As I was exploring this, what I always felt was we had a bit of a hubris as humankind. We used to believe in gods and spirits. And then we got to the point where we were in control of our own destiny. People like Christopher Lash, the, the true and only heaven. The religion of technology by Nabal Noble. All of these false worships gained so much strength that we got everything out of our way except worshiping them as though that was deliverance. You're really pulling it together here, and I'm really grateful that you came to this podcast, and I look forward to hearing your views. But let's, let's, let's start with what, what tickled you inside? What inspired you to write this book? You've written many other interesting books, but this, what, what got this one off the launching pad in your heart? So uh, it's both a goodwill and a lot of anger <laughs> at the same time. And the reason is I was writing those other books, as you said, and working with a lot of governments. And I realized that on one side, we have a lot of knowledge about innovation-based growth uh, and how to actually have better and more prosperous communities on the one side. And on the other side, there's a reality. And we never tell, we meaning public, uh, scientists, social scientists, public and private universities, never really translate it and say, okay, so this is a research. What does it actually mean for people who wants to change their community for the better? There's a dissonance. And because we don't do that, there's myths of what you should do that leads to the waste of trillion dollars on one hand and to uh, actually increasing inequality on the other, which made me quite angry. And I started writing this book saying, okay, so let me write a different book from the other books that I'm usually writing. And this book is, yes, it's based on the best research of mine and others and, and original research, but it's not just here is the here is a puzzle. Here is my answer. Here's why my answer is uh, correct. Goodbye. Instead, it says, here is our finding about the world and here is what it means for somebody who actually want to affect change. Uh, and I have to say it's a humbling experience. I have much more respect for people who try to write those books now, Pe books that policymakers in both a private and the uh, public spheres can write, people that uh, interested citizens can read their book and says, okay, that's actually helped me to do something. Uh, I, this is a very hard writing exercise, much harder than all my academic books. Yes, I, I would imagine you're mindful 
of the structure of social power that you're stepping in and confronting. What we might call that is courageous. And, uh, but mounting the courage to go after, which you might call the taboos and the norms. Some, some people are not mindful of the power structure. They just adhere to it because they can feel it's the path of least resistance. But I'm, I'm curious in your contemplation, you're seeing these things. And, and I'm, kind of, I'm kind of reminded when I first met Jim Balsilli, because he obviously was a big research in motion, enormously successful. But because he was outside of the American system, he was very sensitive to the global design and how tenuous his intellectual property protection might well be. And uh, so there, there, how do you say, little smoke signals that I got from meeting him and interviewing him a couple of times in panels and, and learning from him that you seem to, how would I say, be, be on the same track, perhaps more vividly now, but how do you say, inspired by the same dilemmas or similar dilemmas, I should say. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, living in the U.S. in different places. Uh, so, you know, Boston, but then I moved to Atlanta for eight years. You also see that the story that New York and Silicon Valley likes to tell the rest of America is not a story uh, that the rest of America should adhere to uh, because uh, it does not necessarily give the rest of America a path forward for a more prosperous society and community for them. And I think you know it, you know, coming from Detroit. Yes. Speaking about places <laughs> who were once rich and are no longer that yes. successful. I, li I live in New York. My family has a home in Northern California. And I'm from Detroit, what we call flyover America. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, so those tensions are very much there. And I'll say, I know we were both MIT alumni, but when I showed up at MIT, I took my first economics class and the teacher started talking about equilibrium. And I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck, but I raised my hand and said, isn't that like assuming a happy ending? And uh, <laughs> he kind of growled at me. But uh, yes. Yes. Well, I had a, I had a teacher who once told me when we asked him about whether my model actually represents reality, he completely seriously said, "Well, reality is just another model." <laughs> Grow your own. So <laughs> exactly. So that's why that's why I like to call myself a political economist. Yeah. When you walk uh, into a bookstore, do you file it under fiction or nonfiction? He's a, he, he doesn't know how to sort exactly. the books, right? <laughs> yes. or, or or science fiction. Yeah. One of my favorite genres. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Exactly. That's good. Well, let's go into the uh, how do they say the structure that you share with the audience in this book. There are various things. Start with the difference between invention and innovation. How do you see those processes or, or those as not synonymous, but more textured? Yep. So we have to remember why we care about innovation, right? And we care about innovation because it's, it's impact on human welfare and growth, economic growth. But also we have Corona. Now we cannot fight Corona without innovation, right? But then we have to remember what innovation is. And innovation is not invention. It's not me and you sitting in the lab at MIT and coming up with a new idea. It's not even the first you know, iteration of that idea in the lab. It is the actualization of ideas in the real world all across a production uh, chain or network. Uh, from ideation to after service, including innovation in production, innovation in... Uh, a second generation uh, um, improvement, recombination, design, assembly, all of them. And we can see it in two things. Um, one is the vaccines. I mean, it's wonderful that somebody, two companies, one in Germany, one in the US, came with a new mRNA molecules. In order for that to actually become a vaccine, we had, if you read uh, the, the protocols of operation RAPSPEED, it's we had to overcome 
all the questions of production, actually how you produce it, how you move the vaccines into the human body, then how you put it in different vials, different kind of glasses, and then issues of distribution. And now we know that we have to innovate in order to produce those vaccines into the billions of units and then distribute them around the earth to everybody who needs them more or less every six months. And only when we do that, we can really say that Corona is under control. Uh, so it immediately shows you where innovation and why it's important. It's important because it's continuous, not because you had like a moment of Eureka. It's important because it's continuous and because you, you know, you hit reality again and again and you change it. It's, it's what makes us human, right? To come up with ideas of how to do n new or improved things and do them in reality. The second is, that you know, in my hand and you in your hand hold something that was a supercomputer only 15 years ago. And you and I talking on river uh, side, it could be a Zoom, which is was complete science fiction 15 or 20 years ago. And our professor at MIT uh, talking about deep learning, what we call artificial intelligence now, have said how stupid of an idea it is because it's so resource demanding. And yet, because of innovation in CPUs, in memory, in data transformation, all of those things now are so cheap that we don't even think about how miraculous it is that we use them. If we didn't have this continuous innovation, you and I would still have a, a wooden, big wooden box behind us, and you and I will call and ask a human how to connect us for five minutes of voice which will cost more than all of this video put together. Yep, yep. So you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Innovation matters. It has potential. But the other thing is, to use a religious parable, the servant cannot be your master. The technology and these things are brilliant means to social and human ends. And when that is forgotten, that they are in service, just like markets are in service to social evolution and vitality and well-being. Uh, and when, which you might call the causality goes in the other direction, preservation of structures of innovation or of how markets are organized, then uh, we, we get into much more, which you might call demoralizing and therefore treacherous social zones. Some of when Donald Trump was elected in America, which many people find very haunting, came from his riding around and saying, the system is rigged. And people who were suffering said, oh, I've been waiting to hear that for a long time. Finally, we got a guy that's going to talk. I don't know if he has seduced and abandoned the American people, but there was a deep, deep sense, maybe not a knowledge like you're presenting in this book, but there's a deep sense in many places in the world that something's off course. Something is off course, or, or more importantly, I think, our understanding of how innovation and our action translate to local prosperity, local economic growth, uh, are wrong. And the reason is that we do not have a better, a, a good understanding of how globalization, right? And here I'm talking about the global system of fragmented production, change the way in which we, and at least until COVID, most people didn't realize it, change the way that we do stuff. It also changed the way we innovate. And it's more importantly, or at least as importantly, change the way in which innovation translates to good jobs, prosperity and economic growth in different places, depending on which state of innovation you actually focus on. Uh, so Silicon Valley, and we can talk more about it, it's the optimum of supposedly innovation success, but it's a model that leads to unbelievable high inequality. And in order, yeah, and in order to understand all of this, and that's what the book is trying to do, we have to merge our understanding of innovation economic growth with an understanding of how the global system actually work. And then it actually shows all of us that we have uh, communities. And here I'm talking about, you know, cities from Detroit to Hamilton to um, uh, uh, Winnipeg um, to states and provinces 
um, to actually reach local prosperity based, uh, on, on innovation-based growth. Um, but in order to do that, we have to understand what are the choices and how, how we maneuver, navigate to get to each one of those choices and models. When you talk in the book, I remember there are four stages that you describe. The first being invention. And then later on, there's more in the process in some related to what you might call the context, the, the, the social ingredients in institutions, education and so forth, to um, nurture those further stages. And I'll just start at the beginning, one of our... Uh, professors from MIT, emeritus now, Peter Temin, who was working with me on a conference in 2016 in Detroit, ended up writing a book, and uh, it's called The Vanishing Middle Class. And he was concerned how otherness, racial and gender animosity and things, was demoralizing the, which you might call, political enthusiasm for public schools and so just as we were moving from a manufacturing culture to what I'll call high margin and low margin services, more than 70% of the population was now employed in low margin services. But as W. Arthur Lewis talked about, getting from the farm to the factory, metaphorically getting on the road up the ladder of education to perhaps make more competition in high-value-added services, but broaden the quality and experience of employment and value-added that the population could make was, being just, was just being extinguished by all of this infighting. So let's, I mean, I, that's a long-winded on-ramp, but how do education, how do other institutions contribute for to invention, but then that longer process of innovation that you have in the next three stages. So let's first sort of map the stages. And I think a one good good way of doing that is looking at an industry and an industry that everybody is excited. I did a lot of research about, but a lot of people are now really excited because we don't have it, um, semiconductors. Um, and if you look at places, uh, so Silicon Valley, Tel Aviv in Israel, uh, Taipei in Chinchu, Taiwan, Seoul in Korea, uh, Shenzhen and other places in China. And you look at semiconductors and you see that all of those places have unbelievably successful semiconductor industry. Uh, not only that, but in each of those places, you see the same companies operate. But then you look at what actually happened in each of those cases, uh, places and you see that it's completely different. So in Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley, it's basically that, that moment after invention. It is coming up with new ideas to put on silicon. But then when you actually want to put them on silicon, it all goes to Taiwan, as we now know, uh, because we Americans have forgotten how to innovate in the production of semi um, Silicon chips, basically, you know, because Silicon Valley is now without silicon. And because of that, we now could not produce cars, speaking about Detroit. So Taiwan is the place in the world where they focus on innovation of production and second generation of those chips. And then you look at Korea, they uh, opted for a different strategy. Uh, memory and the touch screens that you love so much. And indeed, Samsung has the second highest profits on every iPhone and iPad and Apple device. Samsung has the second highest profits because of they control critical components in the production. And then you move, you go to Shenzhen and you see that those companies know how to take those sometimes tens of thousands of components, com constantly changing materials and produce and innovate and actually come up with a real product that you can buy. And it's not a surprise that from Shenzhen, all those companies like ZTE, Huawei, DJI, if you have a drone, came because they came, they know how to produce, they innovate in the production itself. Um, and then you look at each of those places and you say, okay, so who, what is a business model, right? 
who, how those companies work, how they make money, and more importantly, who is employed and how they're compensated. And you can see on one hand Silicon Valley, and even more so Silicon Valley on steroids, which is Tel Aviv, Israel, where the real industry is the industry of not technology and production, but it's coming up with companies that you buy cheap and you sell for a lot of money uh, as quickly as possible. So the they, inno they invent and innovate as, as soon as they sort of have a proof of concept of something that is useful, they're being grabbed by multinationals, or if they're even more successful, go to an IPO. They never go to any of those other stages. So the only people that they employed are the, the geek elites, the graduate of the best universities, and the only people that actually enjoy any financial success and profits are those geeks elites a few celebrity chefs, and of course, the financiers. The rest of the population is not even involved in this game. And this game, when it's go high tilt, which it does in Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv, is the economic engine for the whole of society. Okay? And Israel has become vastly richer because of that. But Israel has also become unbelievably unequal. Currently, one of every five households, so one of every five families, don't have enough money to buy food at the end of the month. And this is a society that two generations ago was the second most egalitarian in the Western, among Western democracies. So it is, and, and it's, by the way, it's, it's okay if you know that this is the choice you're making. And then, as you said, you can start, like our old professor, start to think about what institutions and other modes you have so the other 85% also have a future. Uh, and then you can choose it. But you have to understand that this is a choice and that there are other choices to reach prosperity and innovation-based. And, and that's why I talked about TSMC and Samsung, power, real critical power in the global system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember there's uh, three pieces that you talk about later in the, uh, in the story that if you're, just to go to your four stages, your first stage is invention, then you're trying to figure out what products to create, then you're trying to build and evolve those products, and then there's a kind of more larger vision in the fourth stage, which I, I'm not sure I'm as clear on after reading the first time through the book, but then building the institutions to nurture this process and so forth runs into something which you kind of, I don't know if you called it evils, but three things, intellectual property rights and finance. And I, I can't remember the third, but the, the, the data, the data. And these things became what you might call systems of protection, right and wrong, whatever, intertwined with globalization where we don't have a global government and you you warned people not to be what you might call too uh fantasy like euphoric about these possibilities because they didn't have the power to change some of those challenging contours so in a kind of fourth stage how do we implement this for society how do i bring you to a group I'm involved in every year called Homecoming Detroit and talk about what do we have and where can we go, but we got to look at it in that context of financialization and intellectual property rights and data. I say, what do you advise? How do, how do we get out of this, this uh, cage, if you will? So uh, there's two... As, as a book is structured, right, the first and the long part of a book, the longer, is a constructive advice, is uh, understanding what is innovation, what is invention, and understanding the four stages and how communities can sort of choose those stages. And as you said, talk about the institutions that you need to nurture in those stages. And I think that's really important to understand once you innovate in one of those stages, right, once you're Taiwan or Silicon Valley, it's not just because you decided, but you build a whole system of finance, education, regulation, connection to the global networks that then 
makes you better and better and better and excel in those and you have a whole system of business models okay so it's a real choice in terms of that and you need to figure out how to build all those complementary institutions uh, to help the only two agents of innovation in a capitalistic society you know which are companies and individuals which we tend to call them entrepreneurs um, so it's hard it's a choice because it's hard to change but it's also a choice because each one of them have different distributional outcomes. The second part of the book talk about three things that are really important for innovation, but a community, and I would say even the president of the United States have very little ability to change because they're a global system set in various ways. And currently, if you're Detroit, not if you're a really, really, really successful VC or banker in New York, or a re an overworld best patent troll, okay? But if you are from Detroit and you want to change the future trajectory of Detroit, you're going to be hit by them based on innovation. So one is our global system of intellectual property rights, which has now become helper, but even more so a hindrance to innovation, especially for the companies that come and uh, and build around technology that already exists, okay? They will be immediately attacked by other incompetents or patent trolls trying to get rents, for example. But it's not just patents. We have technology standards and, and IPR embedded in those technology standards. Whoever embed their technology basically have rents for life. I don't know if you look at trademarks lately, but they have been exploding even faster than the number of patents in all languages. So we should watch out what words we use, uh, Rob, uh, in this uh, interview, because depending on the way we use them, we might be open to being sued. And then there is a whole world of copyrights, trade secrets, um, on and on and on and on, which limits the ability. Then you have finance which we talk a little bit about, but especially in the US, if you and I would say, wow, this TSMC people were really smart. We also want to have those business models in the US. You will find that it's almost impossible to do it our, under our current financial system and current regulatory system if you're a public company. Um, and the ability to change those two are, I mean, good luck. What you need to do in those two is playing a strategic game of a being extremely savvy about how they work and using if you want to call it very instrumentally the system to protect your own companies one way of thinking about it's thinking about the, the, the ipr it's not just patent trolls but ipr players especially those that want rents um, are very much like bullies. So they will go to the place of least resistance, like water and electricity. Uh, so it's not nice to the world, but if you create a system in which they know that if they attack your companies, it will be really hard to get anything and you might even attack back. Uh, they will prefer to avoid your companies because there's so much um, so many easy targets out there because of the dysfunction of the system. And I would say very cynically as a political economist that if you do it enough in enough places, you will start to have change in the system. Uh, the same is for finance. And in for finance, and, and I've talked about Israel and the US that have similar problem with financialization, you basically need to do two things. Play a delay game so the companies grow as much as they can in your locale and figure out, and that's something I think this is crucial for the US, figure out what is the new financial vehicle to invest in innovation. If you look throughout history and you look at all our old professors at MIT and Harvard, they will teach you that in every area, era or period after industrial revolution, the place that became really successful also figure out a new way to finance innovation right, from the French bank, the German bank, English. Since the 60s, more or less, we have venture capital, but it's running out of steam. 
and it have been working only in one stage and only in two industries, biotech and ICT. The world right now is ripe for an innovation in finance and especially innovation in how you finance innovation. Um, so we should work on that, but most places should realize that the system is now dysfunctional from their point of view. And you play a defensive game of growing your companies, delaying their need to go to the global financial uh, markets. Uh, so very cynical and, and, and not to win. Yes, I think I think it's very important what you're saying, because, as you say, the concentration of power around who, who are the winners in this system or game that we've allowed to evolve is perhaps on the side, as I alluded to Donald Trump, but you could talk about the AFD in Germany, Marie Le Pen, the Brexit voter, whoever, the attraction to, what you might call, angry, protesting, and potentially authoritarian alternatives is not the pathway, or at least it is a pathway that frightens me. And when I look at the, what I often call the commodification of social design and enforcement, you call yourself a political economist, but there are many people who treat economics like it's a separate domain from politics, whereas I see them as intimately intertwined. And with now the complication of globalization, where countries can play off against each other, or powerful people can play off one country against another, more accurately. And it really, it is very daunting to imagine how a country that the International Office of Migration projects, not a country, a continent, the continent of Africa, they project, will move from something like 1.7 billion to 5 billion people between now and 2075. Equatorial region, climate, burning out subsistence farming, what's the development model for broad-based prosperity, or is the world prepared for desperate, large-scale migration on the level of billions of people coming out of Africa, not to mention, even more importantly, the turmoil within the continent of people escaping despair. So I, I think the stakes upon which you're exploring and raising a flag really matter to humanity. It's not just an arm wrestle among this tech company or that, or the people who own this medicine patent versus others, or even whether you get your CDs and your DVDs copied without your intellectual property rights. The, those things are all there and they affect incentives. But I think you're digging much deeper into this. And let, let's talk for a second about climate change. I get the feeling, particularly after the pandemic, that more and more people are terrified and the IPCC and others come at us that we're not on course. And then you have some people talking about ESG or some other people talking about, you know, just get back and let the market solve it. But the collective good in a time frame, which is includes your and my children's lifetime, is, is a very daunting challenge. How do we take the lessons of your work so to, we rise to that challenge more effectively than we appear to be doing right now? So there's, there's two twin challenges. So first of all, um, and especially after the pandemic and with a rising global tension, um, we have to realize that this global system of production that we talked about is one of the worst system we can have for climate change. So I don't know if uh, how bad it is where you live uh, to get even uh, wood for construction now since COVID, but in Canada is beyond belief, right? Because if you look at even the trade wars between Canada and the US, half of it is about wood. And yet Canada does not have now wood, which is not 
very high technology, right? Wood in order to uh, people want to refurnish their home or build. Uh, and the reason is we now have a system which you take the wood from Canada, put it on a sheep. It moves, it's the most polluting sheeps possible. They move 5,000 miles to Asia. Then they go through processing, which is very simple for about an hour or so. Then they're being shipped back on the same ship to go back, all polluting all the way twice. So one of the hopeful things that might come with this pandemic is a rethinking about the real cost and consequences of this massive global system. Uh, and then taking the goods out of it, right? The, because that system is very effective when you are specializing in different stages. And thinking about a diverse regional system of production, okay? Um, politically, I think in the US is now called French shoring. So creating a North America system, creating European system. We will still have a global system, but A, we won't be so much dependent on it. And second, uh, hopefully, will produce a lot less of a climate change, um, gas emitting and various other pollution. In that system is also a really hopeful system because as I said in my book, communities can choose those models and work and get to be part of that global system, but it's a hard work. When the world, and now we have this period of openness to it, is reconfiguring in its global production networks, there is actually more windows of opportunity for communities all around the world who get their game together, decide what stage and what industry if they want to play, and go for it to actually find a place. Because it's an opening. You're not fighting for your place against others. Okay? I would also say that if we don't do that and forget climate change for a moment and go back to the politics. If we don't figure out how to offer hope, hope in the future for people, that their children, that their future will be better, but even more importantly, that the future, they work hard so the future of the children is better, we are going and to end up with horrific political uh, ramification. Trump would look like to American as a mild manner, gentle person. We have already seen it playing out in multiple places. We have already seen what happens with migration to Europe, for example, and we are talking about just a war in Syria. Can you imagine, and that's like few millions a year, can you imagine what's going to happen when, because of climate change and others, it will be tens of millions, forget hundreds of millions. Uh, we will become a very nasty, brutal world where humans will kill and destroy other humans just because they're not part of their tribe. And, and we have done it throughout all our history. So we shouldn't have any illusion about what will happen if you have massive uh, immigration happens because of critical needs. So we need to figure out a way to offer all of those communities hope for a future and prosperity, which is not just by massive immigration. And, and that's another reason why I wrote this book. Um, the other thing about climate change, it also gives an opening to rethinking innovation. So the promise of climate change, which we sell everybody, it's not only that it will be cleaner, but you'll have a green tech revolution that will create growth and prosperity. In order to do that, we, especially we in uh, the United States, have to rethink our model of innovation so it will bring prosperity uh, for all Americans and not just uh, you know to people like us who finished MIT, Stanford, Berkeley and our financiers. In your, in your book, I, I'm always moved, but the story of an earlier globalization, a transformation, seems to be underscored repeatedly in the epigraphs you choose for the chapters from The Wizard of Oz. And what I found fascinating, because my children would tell you this is my favorite film of all time, and that I would vote with them. 
But the idea that's coming forward that you keep to you keep seeming to say is that all these wonderful people who already have these abilities are not recognizing the abilities within themselves and fantasizing about some other place like Oz. And I just thought your quotes were, were really penetrating because it's almost like you're saying to us, Frank Baum can show you that the pathway is hiding in plain sight and we need to pull back the blinds take off the green glasses and see false gods and see what healthy social design looks like. And as you'd said in some of the, metaphorically in the quotes you chose, the Tin Man had a heart. The lion was courageous and the scarecrow was brilliant. How do, how do, we, how do we recognize and excavate from the depths of which you, what uh, one of my Chinese friends calls the invisible republic of the spirit and bring these things into a place where they re-inject confidence and hope and which you might call a pathway that takes the sting out of what might bring the even more uh, violent authoritarian government to the surface, whether here or in China or in parts of Europe or, or Russia. I, I really think, I think you're teasing us beautifully with art, but how do we, how do we, how do we bring the confidence of our potential onto the, which you might call, onto the whiteboard and the design pathway? So uh, the book and that's why I'm reading it in that way, uh, talks to people who want to really change their communities. Um, so, as I said, up to the level of a state in the United States, but really, you know, a city or, or an area around the city, uh, a region. And I think the first thing that those kinds of people, lo uh, local leaders need to do is to understand the real choices. Right. There's a myth that what you want to become is a silicon hyphen. Right. We can go around the world and we'll find that every place claim it will be the silicon something from the silicon peach in Atlanta to the silicon valley of the north to the silicon whatever aisle, whatever you want. And that's just the wrong vision to have, right? We just talked about how silicon valley, assuming you're successful. And in the book, I also explain how difficult it is to ever become Silicon Valley, partly because the global already have a Silicon Valley. Um, if you do that, you're going to end up with massive inequality. So places need to open their eyes, or I shouldn't say places, people needs to open their eyes to the other opportunities that are there and understand that A, they're feasible and B, they are much, much, much better for local prosperity. Once you do that, as you said, you realize you actually have a lot of what it takes and you can map what you need in order to excel in a long time. And that's where I think we lack vision. And here I'm not talking about those grand visions, you know, from Hollywood or the media or even Silicon Valley. I'm talking about, okay, I'm, you go back to Detroit and you and I go back to your friends in Detroit. And the first thing that I think we need to do, or they need to do, and maybe we can help is, okay, if you're successful, we are successful, how Detroit's look like in 15 years? What kind of companies are there? What kind of people they employ? How they're connected to global markets, right? What do they supply to the global networks? And what kind of information, data, whatever you want, they need from the global networks? And then we can map up the innovation policies to reach that, knowing you know that we need to pivot over time because we're talking about innovation. We're not talking about you know the car industry. We're talking about figuring out 
simulating agents, companies and individuals to do things that we cannot know in advance, right? But we can know what kind of companies, what kind of industries, but especially what kind of stage we want to play in and how to build those capacities and then stimulate those companies and individuals to actually operate. And then we have a map and a navigate, and then we can do reverse engineering. Instead of what happens now, which people say, I ask them, okay, so you want to have innovation-based economy? Uh, what, how do you think is success? And they will tell you, and I'm sure a lot of them told you, we need more patents. Uh, they will say we need more VC per capita. They have no idea how success looks like to their community. And they have no idea about the options. So open the eyes, understanding what is success for you, not what is a success in the dream for the New York Times in 10 or 15 years, and then reverse engineer a plan to get there. And, and again, it needs to include what kind of finance, what kind of education, what kind of public and semi-public goods you have, what kind of, and most importantly, what kind of relationship you have to the global network of production and how you create a system that evolved and co-evolved to succeed in that, you know, because what you need in stage one, where you have very few companies, if at all operating that way, and what you have when you're a truly successful locale 15 years later is quite different. Uh, right now, most places don't e are not even in the game. Yes. And it's interesting, I read Bill Janeway's review of your book that was in Project Syndicate, and he talked about the, what you might call, way in which you're taking us beyond the Schumpeterian model, the creative destruction, as though it was just like a random cauldron, by bringing these human dimensions in and the ingredients that are embodied in people that can be nurtured with that 15-year time frame, it really, how would I say, it doesn't seem so frightening and chaotic. It feels like a humanistic path that, how would I say, could calm our nerves. And in doing that, calm our politics and have our politics reinforce these visions and these achievements of greater community. But it's, uh, I think you wrote, how do you say, none, none, you didn't write too soon, because I think the despair has been crawling up around us fiercely in these last few years. And uh, as I said at the outset, I think you're kind of what the doctor ordered and uh, what the, uh, how would I say, what, how do I say, I don't know how we chase away the wicked witch of the East and the West which I believe was a metaphor that pertained to uh, finance on the East and West Coast uh, at the time that was written. But, uh, but, but this, uh, this way of seeing will meet with resistance, will meet with obstacles, people, but it doesn't feel to me like a fantasy. It doesn't feel like romantic foolishness and delusionary it feels like exactly what's got to go on down in the trenches in this homecoming detroit group that i'm uh, involved with which is expats from detroit going home to see how we can help or contribute is getting they're right at the cusp of that design process and i even heard a beautiful talk by uh, jim farley who runs ford motor company about batteries and electric cars and things and he concluded by saying and this might bring things back to detroit not which you might call resurrection of the old model but become a source of nurtured expertise and a dynamism that they haven't experienced in 60 years so uh, how do i say I'm a, I think I'm going to buy 100 copies of your book and send it to all my friends that were at that conference in Detroit <laughs> and, uh, and see if we can get you uh, involved in some of the strategic planning with the teams from homecoming Detroit. It, and I'm sure there's homecoming Atlanta and there's homecoming Houston and all the pl other places too. 
I'll be delighted. Uh, I wrote this book in order to affect change, you know, move a needle even a little. Uh, Detroit, which is now a neighbor, right, to Toronto and Hamilton, I would love to help. But also, um, I would, I, I would love, as you know, I'm a friend of INET, and please think about me as a tool, okay? So if you if you think, okay, this is, as you said, what the doctor orders, we need to, to add 10 cc of innovation in real places, just use me as a tool, I'll be delighted, and whenever you want. Well, excellent, because we do have a Young Scholars Initiative that's well over 12,000 people now, all around the world, and with global governance, and what you might call the common vision of them being exposed and and then going to work and building on the, on the framework that you've created in this book, maybe they can make a bigger difference in, in how you say, join the parade that you've started. Uh, Danny, thanks. Thanks for being here. This is really, uh, like I said, there's a, there's a time when inspiration feels good, and then there's a time where it feels necessary. And I think the inspiration you provided goes goes very deep and is the starting place for a very, very constructive agenda. And I look, I look forward to following your evolution, contributing to awareness. But I want, right now, I would just want to thank you and know that we'll come back and make another episode in a few months as new challenges unfold or new insights appear in your imagination. And ironically, you talked all about innovation, but you're also a mental inventor and uh, how would I say perhaps I can help integrate it forward into the other three stages thank you so much Rob for having me here and uh, may I hope that we have many of those maybe even face to face soon with the help of innovation (laughs) I look forward to that as well thanks until next time cheers bye bye and check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing